0: Well, good morning. If you uh, if you'd like a Bible, please uh, raise a hand. The ushers will give you one or a pen. A couple of fingers, they'll get them to you. Um, before we start, <coughs> I need an angel choir shortly, so that, that's you lot. Um, so, on the sides, what, what I would like you to do is just to go, oh, 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 oh just to keep that going. Oh,
1: oh, oh, oh. can you manage that? Oh. oh, oh, oh. This side. Oh oh, oh, oh. Keep it going. This side. Oh, oh. oh. oh.
0: Okay, great. So when I give you your note, oh, you'll know where you're going with that a little bit later, okay. Thank you. This is uh, my third message uh, in the series on the apocalypse, the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus Christ, in which I'm seeking to distill the thoughts and insights of author Darrell Johnson, whose book Discipleship on the Edge has made revelation for me both accessible And at least somewhat comprehensible, two words that we don't normally use when it comes to this particular book of the Bible. Last week, through John's eyes, for those of you um, who weren't here, we caught a glimpse of um, the Lord Jesus as He is right now, the glorified Son of Man, not Jesus who He was 2,000 years ago, but who He is now, who stands with us, who is just behind the curtain This revelation, this thin veil, if we pull the curtain apart, that divides us from the unseen realm, we see Him. He said, I will be with you always, and it turns out if we peek behind the curtain, He's there. Immediately, He's there. That's what John sees. And following His opening vision, Jesus then gives John a message, or more accurately, seven messages to pass on to seven of the churches in Asia Minor. It would be quite natural, therefore, if you came this morning anticipating that I would be discussing um, said messages. But at the risk of disappointing you, that is not what I'm going to do, even though Darrell Johnson in his book commits a whole chapter to each of those seven messages. Uh, but I, want, I don't want to do that, and here's why. First, we are uh, attempting to peer into the unseen realm Not so much to talk about the church, but to have radical eye surgery so that our vision of who Jesus is, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, our vision of who Jesus is and who He reveals Himself to be is as accurate as we can possibly get it without it killing us. Because remember, God said, you know, no man shall see Me and live. So we're not going to see God in all His glory, we're just catching a glimpse. But we want that glimpse to be as accurate as it can be, all right? So that's the first reason. Secondly, I'm not convinced that it's appropriate to take specific messages given to seven different churches and apply them all to one church in the present day. Jesus didn't do that. He addressed each church separately, so why would I speak to you here at Whitestone as though you were guilty of all the faults of all of them, because that's the only time I've ever heard the the, uh, seven churches uh, preached. And it was like, just one after another, Sunday after Sunday, let's just pound you with all the faults of every church that we can find in this. And Jesus didn't do that. So, I don't want to do that either. So, I am going to be like Superman this morning. I'm going to leap over seven messages in a single bound, which is chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, and we're going to move on to chapters 4 and 5, where we find the first opening. Remember, there are four openings, and this is the first of them. The window, Microsoft Windows, double-click, something opens up, and we get to go in and explore. And so I'm going to read to you chapters 4 and 5, which is kind of long, but you know, this is the only book in the Bible that says there is a blessing attached to its reading. So we're going to read it. And I'm going to pause partway through because you're going to be a choir for us. He writes, John writes, after this, I looked and behold, there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. Once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and, and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an, an emerald encircled the throne. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles, rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. "'encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. "'And the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, "'which are the seven spirits of God, "'sent out into all the earth. "'And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand "'of him who sat on the throne. "'And when he had taken it, "'the four living creatures and the 24 elders "'fell down before the Lamb. "'Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls "'full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people.'" And they sang a new song.
1: Oh, oh, oh,
0: oh, 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 "Oh Keep it going. They sang a new song, saying, "You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain." and with your blood you purchased for God's persons from every tribe and language and people and nation you have been made you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth oh oh then i looked And I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen! And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Lord God, with the psalmists, we say there are some things that are too high for us, things that we cannot understand. But this is your word. This is your gift to us. We know, Lord Jesus, you said that this, this Bible, this book, not just this one, but all the books, speak about you. And this is a revelation of who you are. And so we pray that you would open our eyes this morning to something new about our God and about you yourself, our Redeemer, our Lord, our King. And may we leave with hearts strangely warmed, as those on the road to Emmaus said when they'd seen you and you disappeared and uh, your, uh, their hearts burned within them. Father, may that be our experience of you this morning. We ask it for your son's sake. Amen. The world is not as it seems. How it looks to us in the realm of the scene, which is where we live, is not an accurate picture of reality. And if all we go by is what we see, then we have cause to be greatly troubled. Those of you who wear glasses, do you ever remember the first day you put them on? I mean, I've been wearing mine. I don't remember, if, you know, when I got them. But when you first get glasses, you, the world comes into focus in a way that you didn't even know that you had missed because you get accustomed to just seeing a slightly blurry world. It's just, that's the world you're looking at. But once the glasses are on, well, then suddenly you see things much clearer and you're like, oh, wow, I can't believe I can read those letters at the back of the wall now with my eye test. I can see them, right? And uh, that's how it is. It's not necessarily, you know, hugely dramatic, but it makes a difference. Well, as we come to Revelation, we are all in need of Revelation glasses, because putting them on sharpens and clarifies our vision of both heaven and of earth. So, let's put them on and see through John's eyes as, he, as this chapter begins. He begins, after this, so that after his wonderful, amazing vision of Jesus, after this, I looked, and behold, there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Just as he saw Jesus behind him. Remember, he turned, heard a voice, and turned, and it's right there. Well, now John sees a doorway. Not, I believe, kind of a a way up there. I think I can see a little door. You know, he's not peering through binoculars. It's right there. It's right there. He's still on Patmos. He's still on his rocky prison, but Jesus pulls back the curtain, and there's a door into heaven. Now, he's not seeing all of heaven, okay? He's just got a glimpse of one place in heaven, but that's what he's getting to look through. He gets a glimpse into what's happening in the spiritual realm right there, right then, that was going on even before he could see it, but now he gets to see it. And after this, I looked, and behold, two uses of the verb to see. Look, remember, is the most frequent command in the book of Revelation. Look, followed by the second most frequent command, fear not. Because when we look, well then, we don't need to be afraid. Not just of what we're seeing, but we don't need to be afraid in the seen realm either because of what we see in the unseen realm. And through this open door, John sees what turns out to be the most dominant image in Revelation. He sees a throne. So never mind whatever else is going on in heaven. Uh, My wife and I watched uh, Heaven is for Real over the last couple of days. And this little four-year-old kid gets to wander around in heaven, so he sees all kinds of things. John just gets to see a throne, he gets to see a throne room, look, a throne, and the throne is mentioned 47 times through the book of Revelation. Now if this just leaves us, well, big deal, you know, unfazed, as it really does, that's because we don't really get a grasp of what John is actually seeing. He's not seeing, you know, green fields and children playing and flowers and all this. No, no. He is getting a doorway and getting a peek into the very center of the universe, the control center of the universe, the ultimate seat of power and authority, the throne room of the Lord God Almighty Himself. That's what he gets to peek into, all right? Now, without our revelation glasses, it would be easy to convince ourselves that there is no control center in the universe. I mean, watch the news. We're drowning in chaos and destruction, mass shootings and wars and terrorist attacks and tornadoes and corruption and lies and injustice and tragedy and misery. That's all we see in the scene realm. But if we put our glasses on, well, look, there's a throne. There is a throne and it's not out there. It's right here. It's right behind the curtain. Just as Jesus was, there is a throne. And uh, praise God, it's occupied. And the throne is here in Dousman or Connemark and Pewaukee. Before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby and a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And we're back to John wrestling with words to try and describe what he's seeing, all right? The one on the throne is like, has the appearance of, jasper, ruby, rainbows, and emeralds. You know, rainbows don't look like emeralds. He's just trying to figure it out, what he's seeing. But, uh, you know, what a shock. God is dazzling beyond his ability to describe him. He's pulsing with light and life, glory and power. And from the throne, it says, came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. This is language that has been used and been around God for a long time. You can trace it all the way back to Mount Sinai, where Moses was called to go up and meet with God in Exodus 19. There we read, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and a very loud trumpet. And the mountain was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the whole mountain quaked violently. God's presence is a force of nature, all right? Such imagery should make us sit up straight, maybe put our crash helmets on because we are in the presence right now, right behind the curtain of the Lord God Almighty Himself. He is terrifyingly awesome. He is a consuming fire. This is the one we're talking about. This is the one we gather every week to worship. He is right there. and. What John gives us a glimpse of, and remember, this is just a glimpse because he couldn't see fully God and live, it just, uh, it's amazing. This is the one, despite being, not being somebody to trifle with, he invites us tenderly into his presence, into this consuming fire, this lightning, this earthquake. He's inviting us into his presence at the same time. John continues, in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Seven, remember, is the number of completeness. It's a way of saying that God, who is spirit, is there in all his manifold completeness. God is fully there on the throne. And in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, which is an interesting image, sea of glass. We sang about it, came up in one of of the songs there. As with most things in Revelation, there are numerous theories regarding uh, the meaning of the sea of glass. But I'm with Johnson on this one. He says that to the people of John's day, the sea by its very nature represented the forces of chaos that are loose in our world, in the scene realm, the forces of chaos. In other words, everything that is opposed to and seeks to destroy the work of God. This is supported in chapter 13, where the beast emerges from the sea, all right, the one that brings chaos. If that's the case, then the sea of glass indicates that chaos will one day come to an end. It's going to one day uh, cease, because before the throne of God, chaos, the sea, is stilled. Just as Jesus stilled the storm. In the presence of God, all is calm. It's not quiet. I think we've established that. It's really noisy, in fact. But it is calm. It is at peace. In fact, his peace is inseparable from his presence. It comes with him like an atmosphere. The peace of God calming everything. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. In contrast, the prophet Isaiah writes, but the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. All right, there's the contrast. That's Isaiah 57. It's a timely message both for us and for John because with the unaided eye, as we look around, it's easy for us to feel that everything is just spinning out of control. The world is being tossed about on the stormy sea of chaos. But through our revelation glasses, the picture changes. It shifts because we see chaos stilled. We're living in a world where it's still going on, but behind the curtain, no, no, no. God God has stilled all of that. So we don't need to be afraid. What a comfort in the face of all that we face in this life. God is on the throne and in His presence all is at peace. If we jump ahead to the end of Revelation, uh, Revelation 21, we discover the sea is gone entirely from the picture. All right. It says uh, in um, Revelation 21 And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. No more chaos ever, permanently. How wonderful does that sound? Can you imagine a life without chaos where you don't have to worry about slipping on the ice or your car slipping and crashing? The chaos has gone away where you haven't got to worry about somebody coming in with a gun and mass shooting anywhere around the planet because now it's spreading around the globe. It's happening in other countries. It's not just the U.S. And it's like, you know, but we don't have to panic because... God is in control. There's no longer any sea. It will be gone away. But going back to the open door, because I'm jumping way ahead. Revelation 21 is a long way off. Back to the open door. The next thing John sees is that the throne is surrounded. And there's like some concentric circles, all right? There is an outer ring comprised of 24 thrones. So there's a throne surrounded by 24 other thrones. And on them are 24 elders. And they're dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and behind. So you've got these two rings. You've got four creatures around the throne. And outside of that, 24 thrones with elders on them. Well, who or what are these elders and creatures? And the short answer is, we have no idea. All right? We don't know for sure. But the fact there are 24 in the outer ring most likely means they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, which makes them a symbolic representation of all God's people throughout all the ages. If that's what the 24 elders represent, and we don't really know if it is, but if it is, the four living creatures who are covered in eyes are a much greater mystery, all right? All we're told is one is like, there's that word again, is like a lion, one is like an ox, one is like a man, and one is like a flying eagle. They remain a complete enigma. Uh, but the suggestion that uh, resonates most with me is that they, they represent the whole of God's creation. And the, uh, some evidence for that would be what is said next. Because it says, you are worthy, you know, the, the elders are saying, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things... And by your will, they were created and have their being. Do they represent all of creation? Maybe. you know? Uh, I, I did look up some pictures of, you know, somebody trying to depict creatures covered in eyes, but they were so freaky I decided, oh, no, we don't need to look at that. It's just just weird. All right? And remember, this is just John using words to try and describe something that is pretty much indescribable. Six wings looks like an eagle, looks like a man, but you know, covered in eyes. You know, in the end, who or what they are is secondary to what they're doing. And what they are doing is worshiping the one on the throne, the one who sits there. Day and night, it says, the living creatures never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. What does that tell us? It tells us that when we came to church this morning, when we gathered to worship, we stepped into a service that was already in progress in the spiritual realm. If we'd pull back the curtain, you know, it didn't start when the band came up. It doesn't end when you get in the car and drive home. The worship is going on day and night, but we just get to step into a service already in progress in the spiritual realm. We get to join in with these elders and these living creatures Worshipping the One on the Throne, <clears throat> holy, holy, holy. Most uh, one of the most reliable indicators, I think, that we are wearing our Revelation glasses, is that, and our vision is somewhat clear, is that we are a worshiping people, people who worship with lips and hearts, minds and bodies, the people who have surrendered everything to the One who sits on that throne. In other words are people who are seeking to love God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's what we do. That's why we worship. And that thought bumps us up against the end of chapter 4. And as chapter 5 begins, John continues to peer through the door, and it's like the camera zooms in, all right? I don't know how we can see through all the lightning and the flashes and and the jasper and the ruby and the emerald, and I don't know how we can see through all that. But it's like it zooms in because it says, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. It is completely sealed. Remember, seven, number of completeness. We read that, and we, we immediately want to know, okay, what's written? What's written on that scroll? All right, what does it say? It's written on both sides, you know, and it's, it's been rolled up, and it's sealed, seriously sealed, What is that about? What could could be so important that God is holding it in his right hand? Of course, this is imagery too because God doesn't have hands. It's all imagery, all right? But that's what he sees. And we're going to find out in the coming chapters what that scroll says. But spoiler alert, what it contains is the complete account of all that God has planned for rectifying all that is wrong in creation and the world and the final establishment of his kingdom. That's what it contains. In other words, it's God's plan for the ages. He has his plan in his hand, a plan that by necessity will involve judgment and destruction against all that has caused all that is wrong in the world. What do we expect him to do? No, no, no. There, there will, a judgment will come on all that is wrong, on all that has worked and opposed God and His kingdom. That's what's in the scroll. But we'll get to that some other day. The existence of the scroll underscores the fact that, you know, uh, despite the apparent unchecked chaos, God is in control because He has a plan. He has a plan. He's always had a plan. And it's held in his right hand. In verse 2 of chapter 5, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who indeed? Who could open up the plan of history, bring history to its conclusion? Who is worthy to reveal God's plans and execute that plan on the world stage? And the answer is no one, no one. Verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. The human race can do some remarkable things. If you go out at night and look up at the moon, people have walked on that thing. That just is mind-blowing, all right? And they've come back and lived to tell the tale. We are talking about maybe sending people to Mars right now. Human beings are able to create electronic circuitry at a molecular level, molecule to molecule. We are able to grow, and don't ask me how this is possible. You know, we we talk about, oh, yes, it's, you know, OLED screens. That's organic LED. We can grow something that creates light. That's just amazing, right? We are, can write soul-stirring poems and music, music that just moves the heart, can bring us to tears. We can produce magical movies, but in spite of the amazing array of human ability, not a single person throughout all history is found worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. As the Apostle wrote to the Romans, no one is righteous, not even one. One. Now, I don't know why, but the fact that no one is found, and that this is declared, no one is found, the elders telling him this, hits John really hard, uh, and he starts to cry. He says, I, I wept. He repeats himself, I wept, and I wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And right here, says Darrell Johnson, we come to the very heart of the Christian vision of reality. What happens next? So, we need to take a breath, and we need to let this next part sink in as to really what John sees. While John weeps, his attention is momentarily drawn away from the throne because one of the twenty-four elders, one of the elders, uh, turns to him and says, one of the elders said to me, do not weep, do not weep, look. And then he uses two messianic titles from the Old Testament. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. The lion has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So this elder has John's attention for a moment. And then John turns his gaze back to the throne. And are you ready? Because what happens next is the most critical element in this vision. What happens next changes the way we see everything on earth. He turns his gaze back to the throne, expecting to see what? A lion that's triumphed. He's expecting to see a lion. What does he see? He sees, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. That's what he sees. Wait, we're like, what? I I thought... I thought God was on the throne. How is this, this, where's the lion go? Why is there a lamb looking like if it's been slain on the throne, encircled by these creatures and these elders? As one New Testament scholar put it, this is perhaps the most mind-wrenching rebirth of images in literature. The slot in the system reserved for the lion has been filled by the (laughs) Lamb of God. The lion has triumphed, and then I saw a lamb. And the word actually means little lamb, as in Mary had a little lamb looking as if it had been slain. Slaughtered would be a better translation. The lamb lion has triumphed, has won, by being slaughtered, by going to the cross. He is worthy because he sacrificed himself. And if that wasn't a big enough plot twist, it gets stranger because the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. And we're back to weird imagery again. But eyes represent wisdom, horns represent strength, Seven is the number of completeness. This little lamb is in possession of complete and absolute, unqualified wisdom and power. And did you catch where he was located? He is standing at the center of the throne. We're like, well, wait a minute. I thought God was on the throne. Well, he is. Well, then how can the lamb be on the throne? Well, because we're not looking into the visible realm. It would be impossible if I'm sitting on a chair for something else to be on the chair, you know, at the same time, because I'm on the chair. But we're dealing with the spiritual realm. And what John is seeing, because God is spirit, this is the, there's God, is, he hasn't moved. He is still on the throne. But in the center of God on the throne, there is a lamb who looks like it's been slain. All right? That's what he sees the very center of the dazzling one, the jasper, ruby, emeralds, rainbows one, that's where Jesus Christ is, the lion of the tribe of Judah, standing at the very center of the being who is Lord God Almighty, because, of course, we have a triune God who is three but one. They are all present on that throne. That is why Daryl Johnson tells us we have arrived at the heart of the Christian vision of reality. That is why Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals, because he is a lamb that was slaughtered. He, that would be Jesus, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, again, don't think in the physical realm. Lambs don't have hands. How did the lamb take the scroll? Come on, all right? He's with God on the throne. Why did did he have to go and take it? Where did he go to? This is just, you know, It's visionary language to try and describe something that he's seeing. The Lamb, who is Christ, is able to take the scroll, is worthy to take the scroll because he was slaughtered. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Then in response to this dramatic Miraculous turn of events, John witnesses three explosions of worship. The first is by the four living creatures and the 24 elders who sing a new song around the throne. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. There's the because. You're worthy because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God's persons from every tribe and language and people and nation." That's the first explosion, the two rings. And then there's a second explosion from the angelic host, because apparently there is a third ring around the throne, which just wasn't mentioned until now. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousand upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, "'Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So, you've got one explosion of worship, another explosion of worship, and then there's a third from the whole cosmos itself. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That worship service that was in progress when we arrived this morning that we joined in with is way bigger than we can ever possibly imagine. And if we had had the curtain pulled back for us this morning, and this is the part of heaven we got to see, that's what's going on. 10,000 times 10,000 angels, all the cosmos, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, all worshiping the one who sits on the throne, the lamb who stands at the center of he who sits on the throne. In closing, I want to come back to what I said about how this vision changes the way we see things here on earth. How does it do that? Well, first off, our revelation glasses enable us to see that there is a control center in the universe. There has a center. And that on that throne sits God Himself. It is an occupied throne. It's not unoccupied. It's not, oh like I saw a throne room. Uh, Where did God, God go? No, no, He's always been on His throne. And the lamb lion who stands in the very center of the living God has won. It means that in the battles we face here on earth as a church, as individuals against the chaos of the world in which we live, the evil, the injustice, the pain, the misery, Some of those were mentioned in our songs, too. We need no longer be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. The lion has triumphed. It is finished. Hallelujah. Secondly, our revelation glasses enable us to see history's end. God has a plan. He's always had a plan, which means that despite what we see and hear, all is not spinning out of control. All is not going to hell in a handbasket. All right? God has the plan. Jesus is worthy to execute that plan. God is working through the ages to accomplish that. And when the Lamb breaks the seals, we'll discover that everything, even the forces that have raged against God through millennia, end up serving his purposes. So we need no longer feel hopeless. Or helpless. We don't need to fear because God is on the throne, and we don't need to feel hopeless or helpless because He has a plan and He is working that plan out. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Peace be still. And thirdly, our revelation glasses enable us to see that at the center of the cosmos is one who suffered the lamb slaughtered for the sin of the world the one who was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with with grief, one who went to the cross because of us, for us, and instead of us. So we need no longer walk through this life condemned or alone in our suffering. The one who still bears the scars sits right there with us. The throne of God feels the suffering of His creation and does what God alone can do, offers comfort and peace in the midst of it. These then are the first glimpses of what John sees when the curtain gets pulled back and a door to heaven is opened. Look, a throne, a lamb, a scroll, a worship service. Look, everything is not as it seems. Let's pray. Father, we are all too familiar with what Your Word tells us to walk by faith and not by sight, but so often sight is overwhelming. So often we are, our actions, our behavior, our thinking is dominated by the things that we see, the things that happen to us, the experiences we go through. But thank you that in this final book of your Word, you pull back the curtain and open a door just a little, and we catch a glimpse of something, of another reality that with our revelation glasses on, changes everything. So we need no longer be afraid for our life. What can they do? Just take our life is what we read in your Word. That's the, the very worst anything can do, they can take our life. But it doesn't end. It goes on forever. We need no longer feel hopeless or helpless because you have a plan. Even when life seems to be at its most chaotic for us, you still have a plan. And you are working towards fulfilling that plan through the ages. And in, our, in the midst of our suffering, you stand with us because you feel it with us. You've suffered there with us. And so you can bring comfort and peace when there should be no comfort and peace, still you're able to bring it. Thank you. Thank you, God, for the glasses that enables us to see a glimpse of all that you have prepared. In fact, your word tells us we have no clue. We can, and the heart is not seeing, the eye is not. We can't imagine what you've prepared for those that you love, those who are called by your name. And so to the extent that it's possible, may we leave here today conscious, conscious, of the, of the presence that goes with us, the worship service that continues, and the life that awaits, that can strengthen us to live fully for the Lamb in the here and now, in the scene. Help us do that, I pray, for your kingdom's sake. Amen. God bless you. If you would like prayer, there will be people up the front that you can come and pray with. But otherwise, we'll look forward to a, a chilly week. But maybe uh, come for a heartwarming service next Sunday. Uh, we'll pick up Revelation again in March. So.